Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast, presented by Paul Spain, Bradley Burrows and guests. Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode number 65. You're with myself, Paul Spain. Uh, Nate Dunn. And Skip Parker. Welcome along, everyone. Hope uh, you had a great Easter. We have a big, big lineup of uh, of tech and gadgety related news this week. Um, a bunch of layoffs, actually, out there. Uh, we talk about some New Zealand uh, tech technology uh, from the chaps at uh, Unified Inbox. Uh, we talk about uh, some US happenings, a bit of drama with uh, a Trojan. Um, a bit of drama with a Trojan. Just a small one. Yeah. No big issue. No big issue. Um, a billion dollar uh, acquisition. Uh, we chat about some uh, Canadians that have been a little bit uh, naughty and uh, a big announcement from Pacific Fibre. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a bit more in there, but uh, that's the bulk of it. So, uh, guys, let's jump in. Um, first up, we've just, just heard in the last couple of days um, about the possibility of Sony possibly laying off up to uh, up to 10,000 uh, people as being reported uh, in, in Japan at the moment. Uh, nothing official from Sony yet. And Yahoo uh, confirming that they will be uh, laying off 2,000 people, which I think about uh, 14% of their workforce. That's pretty major in the scheme of things, isn't it? It's not a small number of people, but, uh, I mean, Yahoo need to need to trim down and slim down, really. I mean, they have, they really have, what, I think it's 14,000 employees running that site, um, all the services. Yeah, spread out all over the world, as I was reading that, that article. That's incredible. They've got such a presence. Um yeah, and I think they just need to to get the, that labour, those labour costs down, so they can start competing again. It's um, I think they've been running a bit of a, a glut for a, a wee while now. Now I understand that the um, the cuts have been in the commercial sales side of things, mostly around advertising and that sort of thing, which seems to be a little bit weird in my in my book. Maybe they just have too many sales reps, but surely that would be one area you don't want to slice away too quickly. Well, they have changed their uh, their business model, though, worth bearing in mind that um, as they've moved across to using uh, Microsoft's uh, Bing search engine to drive their search, uh, also a lot of the advertising is uh, is being handled now by Microsoft. So they're not, it's, you know, they they don't have to actually go out and sell that stuff. But you know, they do have other um, other on- online properties and and so on that they they probably need to represent in in some way. So yeah, that's a um, uh, probably a, uh, yeah a bit of a worry in in some regards, but yeah necessary that they uh, they they lighten up. Now, question I have is um, why is Yahoo still here? I mean, do we really use it? <laughs> well, it's always Yahoo's always been big in the US, and I think that's where you know where you see uh, most of their their share. You look in New Zealand, not you know I don't know anybody that uses Yahoo as their search engine of choice. In New Zealand, it's sort of Google, Google. And more Google, and you know, a very, very, you know, thin slither really to uh, to Bing here, and then anything else sort of tends to, uh, you know, tends to come after that. Mm. To be more of a like a boutique search engine, yeah. I, you know, you get that thing where people are using Google, you know, instead of typing in an, in the address bar, and you see it everyone, especially with um, my parents and my um, partner, especially, you know, you'll say go to whatever, try trade me, and you'll see them jump on Google and type in trade me and then click the first result. It's it's incredible. They don't understand that, hold on, there's actually an address bar. There is a really short domain that you can type stuff into. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? And uh, you know, I guess there are so many things with technology. There's always a hundred ways 
you know, well, there are always lots of different ways of doing something. Uh, yeah, people just get used to using these um, these sort of techniques. I think it's incredible that you know that article saying that they're going to they're going to save about three hundred seventy five million dollars a year. It's just you know you see in all these tech things you see these big figures thrown around left, right, and centre. You know, the uh, Instagram deal at the moment a billion dollars, but you know it's there's just massive amounts of money. It's incredible. It's funny because the article sort of talked a little bit. One of the ones I read talks about the fact that shareholders aren't necessarily looking for cost saving measures. They're actually looking for strategic direction on the whole thing. So it's kind of interesting you say that. I think they're pulling out the big figures to try and, you know, shore up shareholder confidence a little bit. But, you know, it's kind of like, well, yeah, but what is Yahoo? What does it do? I mean, it has it has Picasa, doesn't it? Well, they've got a, yeah, they've got a range of services. There's a whole bunch that they've... Um, that they've actually clo- closed down, um, or you know, that have that have finished up. Um, but there are, yeah, certainly lots lots of current, um, you know, projects and things from uh, from from Yahoo. And yeah, that's one of them. Um, Yahoo Groups, Yahoo uh, Finance. Uh, they've they've got their own um, email service. Oh, don't get me started about the email service. It's one of, it's is just it, yeah. creates so much havoc for me in life. It's is just, that is that the one that extra? Uh, that is a telecom ha- powered. Ha- happen to yeah. um, use now for all of their or telecom well, they, use for for um, for their customer email. They basically just fob it off as what it is. That's all it is. But I love Flack is, Flick is the main thing, isn't it? That Yahoo's known for. Uh, Flick, you know, that's in, the one in New Zealand Picasso. right now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Picasso is the the Google one. The Google one. Um, just like to point out that Lycos still exists. I don't remember back in the day when you used to use Lycos.com for searching. I don't think I ever <laughs> used them. Um, one of the services they do own is um, Yahoo Babelfish, which is a translation, oh, the translation service that was around a lot. I think quite a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and I think they must have, um, yeah, they picked that up uh, somewhere along the way. Um, and if I remember correctly, they also um, are the big. Um, uh, like trade me type service in Japan, I think that it's Yahoo that um, that provides that. If I uh, if I remember that one correctly, um, you get extra points if you can pronounce it though. <laughs> <laughs> Japanese version of trade me. Ah, very cool. So they are yep. they are pretty extensive, but uh, it is it's it is a bit sad to see them starting to waver off a bit because you know the the Facebooks, the Googles, us, and even Microsoft with Bing are starting to cut into that space quite a bit now. Mm. I think it just shows, you know, you can't be really, there's no room for complacency in any of these online offerings. It's, you know, if you're not doing it, if you're not pushing ahead, if you're not breaking those those boundaries and seeing how far the technology can go, um, you know, just wait for a little bit and someone else will overtake you. And before you realize, you're, you know, well behind them. Yep. It's, you know, incredible. And uh, it sounds like there's the potential, as we say, we don't have anything official yet, uh, but the potential there that Sony are going to um, to be cutting a bunch of uh, a bunch of people as well, ten thousand, which is on a much bigger scale. Then again, you know, Sony's obviously a, uh, um, a much larger company, but that one's concerning. So we'll certainly report back if we hear a uh, hear a bit more on uh, on that one. Um, now, Nate, you alluded to uh, a billion-dollar deal. You were talking about uh, Instagram, and it's just been announced today that um, Instagram, which is the um, service predominantly used on, on iPhones at the moment, but it's just come out for Android as well, for um, making uh, funky and very old-looking uh, photos with your uh, uh, with your smartphone, um, yeah, just went for a billion dollars. That's uh, – it's um – 
I think last time I was on here, I was talking about how you know Android users, and I'm a big fan of the whole Android platform, have finally been able to get uh, Instagram, and then yeah, they've just been bought out. And it's it's um, interesting how it's a you know a service that you can take photos and then modify and apply filters. Like if someone had pitched that to me as software, I would have thought, oh well, you know that's a nice sort of um, interesting app, but never would have thought there'd be actually any value in it. Um, and I, I was also reading a, a blog post, I think it was yesterday or the day before, about how um, it's not actually available on all the Android platforms. And it was uh, uh, the blog was a particular one about the iPhone and how with the iPhone having the set hardware right across, you know, well, they've got the one device, um, and it's the, the fragmentation of Android, you know, is actually not a really good thing when you're trying to develop apps that'll work across everything, so. Yeah, I mean, it's only just come out on Android, hasn't it? But, uh, you know, as a platform, the fact that um, there are so many variants of Android and so many different types of devices does uh, does make it hard from a from a developer perspective for sure. Yeah, because I was also looking at uh, I think it was Hulu or Netflix or one of the, t- the uh, services to run on my tablet. And again, there's a very small amount of yeah I think it was Hulu a very small amount of tablets that it actually supports, and they're finding that they're having to have all these different variations for all the different manufacturers, all the different hardware. So um, yeah, I suppose that's where the fragmentation of Android really doesn't work that well. No, no, it, it uh, definitely creates uh, the odd challenge, shall we say. So, yeah, thinking about that, now Instagram, off the top of my head, had um, about 30 million users. Is that um, accurate? 25, I th- no, something like, f- yeah, 25 million, I think. Okay. 25 or 27 million. But if, let's, but let's say- in saying that, that was just off their iOS install base. What they found is the day they went to Android, they had a million users added to that base on the first day, in the first 24 hours, and they were tipped to head well towards 50 million users with the Android base. And there has been some speculation that perhaps Facebook's move to buy the company at twice its market value, its perceived market value, because it's only really valued at $500 million at a push, was because they were concerned of the massive growth that Instagram had gone in terms of in terms of user base. And there's sort of a discussion about whether Instagram could be called a social network space itself. Um, there's still, a, you know, it still lacks a bit. There's no advertising there. There's no revenue model behind it. It is just a bit of an odd one, but um, I guess the revenue model is just being brought out for a billion bucks. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm reading here they are talking about, um, yeah, 30 million users. Now, if you actually calculate that out based on the current user bases, now bearing in mind this is a free service, what they're saying is every single user is worth to Instagram thirty US dollars a piece. Now I wish I had known that you could sell things like this. Um, you know, back in the day where I launched my social network World DJ, we grew that to three hundred thousand members, and if I'd been able to sell those for thirty US uh, a piece, that would have been uh, ten ten million. Um, Greenbacks hanging out of my back pocket, uh, but never mind. We uh, we learn these lessons on uh, on what can be done if you uh, if you plug into the right people that have got lots of money and want to throw it around. It'd be interesting to see with this acquisition how Facebook take that platform and, and integrate it with their um, you know their whole photo site because I know that the Facebook uh, photo, which is you know a Facebook app, um, is the largest photo you know. Or not collaborating, uh, repository of photos anywhere in the world. So, um, in my mind, them taking out Instagram is yeah makes sense. Um, they um, they decided the Facebook announced they were going to keep it separate 
as a separate company. But I mean, for now, for now, exactly. Yeah. But um, you know, Instagram, twelve employees, twelve employees, a billion dollars. So that spreads quite nicely amongst the team, I thought. <laughs> yeah, that'd buy a lot of marmite, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, sorry, 13 employees. I was slightly wrong there, but uh, still, you know, one extra employee, it's a billion bucks, you know. It's all good. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a good um, it's a good showcase that, you know, to build a billion-dollar company, you don't necessarily need to have, you know, global offices everywhere and, and thousands of staff and, and all this infrastructure. You know, you can just take an idea, do it very, very well, and then just hold out for the right buyer. Yeah. Yep, definitely. That actually does seem to be quite a, a few companies' um, business strategies these days now. Wait for Microsoft, Google, or Apple to buy them out, mm. or Facebook, as it seems. Yep. Uh, now onto um, onto a, a local story. There's um, a company we've, we've uh, um, chatted to over the last little while called Unified Inbox, and you can look these guys up at unifiedinbox.com, and they've got some um, some pretty cool concepts around uh, better and smarter handling of uh, of email now we expect to be getting together with them over the next little while to, to see a little bit more of their product um, but if you go to unifiedinbox.com uh, right now there is a YouTube video up there uh, that shows you some of the um, smart bits and pieces they have uh, with a unified uh, archive system uh, special filtering rules and um, other things that are really designed um to make email a more uh, useful uh, platform, uh, both for individuals and operating in a um, in a group type uh, scenario. So, yeah, some some quite um, cool little add-ons and, and bits and pieces that are um, that are in their system. And yeah, I think this stuff's got quite a bit of potential. So, is this designed for um, like a support desk for you know you've got ten or fifteen employees that are all looking after support at mycompany.co.nz and then I, you can? I think it's designed really broadly. So you know, it's something that individuals could use, but also can be used in those sort of group. Uh, group scenarios for um, you know for for teams and so on. Yeah, because I was watching the the um, the video before, and I think the classic providers, if you ever email, I think it's one of the car companies, possibly Thrifty, mm. um, and they've got a very sort of hodgepodge way. They all share must be like an IMAP email account, and that's the first company I thought straight away that this would be a a perfect um, solution for them. Mm. Mm. Um, and I I can think too that it would fit well. You know, if you're a small company, you've got one person on support desk. All of a sudden, you get very, very busy. You've got three or four more staff. You know, you could get the software. And I really like the fact that you can, I was watching this video before, you can assign particular emails to, you know, people that have got expertise in possibly that area. So instead of having to sort of yell across the office, across the uh, the cubicles, you can actually have something a little bit smarter and a little bit better. Yeah, it certainly, um, you know, makes a lot of sense. So we'll report back a little bit on, on, uh, more, more on that. Um, these guys are really um, attracting quite a bit of attention uh, internationally. Um, there's there's quite a bit of a, a story to uh, tell. We just wanted to give that a bit of a mention this week, and uh, and we will come come back to it shortly. And you know, we just we love uh, we love it when New Zealand startups um, come up with great things and uh, and launch them internationally. It's uh, it's always a really good good thing to see. Now, um, something else came across was um, US are changing. Um, Changing some of their laws um, that will sort of make it legal for uh, for individuals and uh, and organisations to have um, their own unmanned uh, drones flying around the place. Have you guys uh, did you guys catch up on this one? Oh, it's incredible! What a what a scary thought that you'd just be walking <laughs> around and you hear this. Is it 
flies her head thinking, oh, I wonder if that was a Google drone or was that one of the uh, Department of Defence? Or... Well, I guess there's, I mean, we, I think we talked on one of the earlier shows that these sort of things are starting to appear and the, the, the um, you know, the, the police in some parts of the US are using them now. I think uh, Brad said he saw a, uh, a police drone fly over when he was in, uh, in Seattle uh, a few months ago. Um, so these things are becoming a reality. Obviously, there are parts of the world that are at war, and these things are uh, are a, a very scary reality in those places because they, you know, they have the potential to come in and um, destroy you. Mm. Uh, but yeah, these uh, you know surveillance type drones and so on, I, I think are. Um, yeah, have a scary side to them too, right? I suppose the, the, the straightaway, the example, like the New Zealand example, I could think of that would actually be a good proof of this technology would be flying it over, I don't know, the Coromandel looking for all the uh, marijuana plantations that are hidden around rather than commissioning, you know, I think it was on the news uh, last week where they actually use army Iroquois, I think it was, and they fly the, the police around. You know, if you had a droid like this, you could actually pinpoint the exact GPS location. So are you suggesting this for individuals who are trying to get a drug stash for themselves or for the police? No, I'm saying, suggesting this for the police. <laughs> did, I, did I see you place an order for a drone just recently this week? Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, just you could, uh, assuming that the, the drone's um, running costs would be a lot lower than, you know, um, getting someone from the army through, um, you could use it to, to fight that whole war on drugs. I reckon search and rescue is the one, the one key. You know how you hear search and rescue efforts have been shut down for the night because it's too cold or whatever. Hmm. Drones can keep flying. I mean, th- those are sort of areas that I reckon it can work really well. But I'm just a little bit concerned that they might be arming drones in the metropolitan area. You know, sitting there getting an a exocet missile up your backside for a traffic infringement or something. <laughs> it could be a bit concerning. <laughs> well, yeah, they probably they probably wind down the uh, the severity for a for a first infringement though, Skip. <laughs> it's uh, it's that third infringement that you should be most worried about. Do you oh, think they'll know. ever? You know how Wellington had that whole. Uh, car parking car that was going around you know being overly heavily handed about you know if you stop for 10 or 15 minutes they would give you a ticket is um would they have a, a wellington city council droid that would you know <laughs> no, fly around and it wouldn't work you'd be crashing into buildings all the time There's so <laughs> many buildings in downtown wellington and it's so windy it'd probably never get off the ground well they'd get up there and then they'd just get blown into the side of a building or something, <laughs> right? So, sorry to our Wellington listeners. I, I don't know. There's a bit of a love affair with drones because they seem to have this perceived uh, cost-saving value on it. So it's kind of like, you know what? Um, yep, it's going to be cheaper to run. But I just look at it and go, yeah, you know what? You've got that cheaper Taiwanese-built drone flying around the city. How many things are going to go wrong? And to be honest, I mean, I've seen the large Predator drones that they use in the US military up close. I mean, it's as big as a jet. They're not small aircraft. Mm. No, no. They're, Some they're, of them are small, huge. but the general yeah. ones that are doing the real serious work are big aircraft. So let's just busy well, they're, up and the they're worth millions of dollars. They're probably not, or you know, they're not uh, something that we'll probably see around um, our you know local townships anytime soon. No, that's right. Good, good. All right. Well, um, there we go. That's enough of my uh, fascination with drones and um, and and uh, robots for uh, for the evening. Now, I think the website, if you're interested in that, is go to DIYdrone.com, I think is the site. Okay. You can actually make your own drones with your own remote control aircraft because it's all Arduino-based kits, and you can you can unfortunately build your own drone for less than a couple of hundred bucks. Well, there we go. Um, plug them into your computer and map it out and get it to see if it actually flies the course. Well, if I've, anyone gives it a go, definitely drop us a line. We like to uh, we like to hear about those kind of uh, cool uh, homegrown or you know homemade type projects. I think I'm my day's tomorrow sorted. I'm going to go and build a drone. <laughs> Fly it outside <laughs> Skip's window. Um, now, there was some really big 
news over the weekend, and um, um, I guess the the news was in the in the numbers, and um, this the what we're talking about is the flashback malware that's been floating around on the Mac um, since 2011. Actually, it's been floating around for some time in various uh, iterations, uh, but the news came out that. Um, they're now uh, estimating that uh, 600,000 uh, Macs have been infected with this malware. Now that's pretty um, a pretty large uh, you know percentage in the, in the uh, in the scheme of things, isn't it? Compared to the claim that Macs can't get viruses, yes. <laughs> Well, I think you know we've talked about it on the show a lot. You know, whatever system you've got, you should protect it with you know, with appropriate antivirus, anti-malware type software. And, you know, I think this is probably, um, you know, just a good reminder that when we say that, when, you know, we're, you know, we're not just making it up. There is a, you know, there is a genuine reason that uh, any technology platform has risks associated uh, in terms of being able to catch, um, you know, or get, get hit by uh, by vulnerabilities. And in a, a very much in a corporate environment, you know, you can never be uh, lax about your security. And it's not a, a sort of thing where, you know, you, you set up your firewall or, or whatever, you know, network rules and go, great, that's me done. You know, it's a constant uh, evolving um, task and you can never be complacent about it because it will just come back and bite you. Yeah, for sure. Um, my big concern is that um, there is still a little bit of, of um, what's the word, uh, Stuck in the midness, shall we say, from Apple on this platform, they still say, you know, I mean, they're starting to introduce antivirus for the Mac operating system, but you still have a lockdown feature set on the iPhone. So, you know, in theory, you can never get a virus on the iPhone. Well, that's what you said about the Macs, guys. So perhaps there's going to be a little bit of a soul-searching exercise at Apple, especially, just to say, well, maybe there is the possibility that there's some problems and we need to open this up because I know that there are a number of really good antivirus solutions for the Mac operating system that work very, very well with corporate and private stuff. So that that's cool. Um, and it's not a bad thing to say that your operating system does have the occasional flaw. Everyone has it. It's just actually it's been quite surprising how long it's taken for Mac to actually have this occur. Yeah, I mean, there have been things over the years. I, I mean, I remember something used to spread uh, between Macs on floppy disks uh, going back, you know, um, over twenty over twenty years ago. So, you know, there have there have been security, um, um, you know, issues around on the on the various uh, versions of Mac operating systems since almost year dot, but not according to Apple corporate. And that's I think where the dangerous parts come into an organisation that says, you know what, we're not going to approve antivirus software into our platforms because we don't believe we're vulnerable. Yeah, you know. well, they did change their tune last last year, and they you know they've yep. they've built in um, you know some uh, some of that sort of at an operating system level, which, yes. which is good. I think what Apple play on, you know, their tagline is um, Macs don't get PC viruses. Um, they, yeah, they don't get win they don't get Windows viruses unless you're you're you know running Windows on your Mac. Um, but a Mac is a is a personal computer, and and you know in fact the um, this latest particular uh, issue that we're we're seeing um, takes advantage of a, a Java uh, security hole, um, you know, and Java's certainly across 
you know platform type uh, type technology. Although in this case, it is a very specific, uh, you know, it's a Mac specific uh, issue. So. Yeah, definitely um, just really, I think, a reminder to all of our listeners is, is to be cautious and, um, you know, and careful around your security. Now, another thing that sort of ties in, um, I guess, in in line with this is um, also to be cautious about your mobile platforms and actually how you use them. And the latest one we've heard of is, um, and this, this has been, um, I guess, public for a little while as well, are, is the vulnerability of certain apps um, on iPhone and on other platforms that can uh, potentially leak uh, information that you have either on your phone or on your email server. Um, so one of the uh, latest ones is around um, the Facebook application on iPhone. and uh, Dropbox as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and, uh, and Dropbox and them not... Um, uh, I guess they're leaving really critical uh, data unencrypted on your phone, so someone could use that to access a you know a whole lot of stuff that they shouldn't. Because a perfect front for that would be to create an app that you know um, you know a, a flickering candle or a flame or something, and the user goes, oh, that's really really pretty. But in the in the actual background, it's going, you know, it knows where those configuration files are. They're in plain text, so they don't have to do any work, and it it, mm. it fires it off to. Um, some site where they can then pull down all your files, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are storing a lot of sensitive stuff in Dropbox. And yep. you know, if those passwords got out, they would be stuffed. Yeah, yeah, not 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 a good position. And we've you know heard in the last few few months there was uh, um, you know a situation with apps on the iPhone that had access to your um, uh, uh, location information, and it turned out actually. Uh, those apps were able to draw that out of the f- out of your photos, but they're also actually able to access your entire photo collection on your phone as well, and potentially upload those to another location. So, um, you know, these sorts of things are going on behind the scenes on smartphone platforms, unbeknownst to to a lot of users. Uh, the other one was the um, uh, contact sync, where you would allow an app access to your contacts so that it could. You know, maybe you know, match up your friends and so on. But there were a bunch of apps that were then taking all your contacts and uploading them to their server. So not just accessing them on your phone, but uh, but running off with all that data and storing them elsewhere. It's such a bad way uh, for apps to do that. Like um, you know, with the proliferation of a thing called OAuth, which all the big sites like Facebook, Twitter, Flickr use. Um, and for anyone that's not familiar with it, the Oh, well, it's quite a complicated um, protocol. But what, in, in essence, what happens is when you um, authorize an app to um, get access to your data, you don't give the app your username and password. What you end up giving it is a token. And then the nice thing is that because um, you've got the app's only got that token, they don't have access to anything else. As if something rogue does happen, you can log into that Twitter service or Facebook, revoke that it, token, and then yeah. that that app's gone. So. It, it, is a is a fantastic plan. It's very complicated, you know. As a developer, I loathe it because it's ridiculously complicated to to implement and use. However, um, you know, these big services should be really enforcing that. Um, and if you want to develop an app for our service, that's fine. But you've got to use OAuth or, or a similar protocol to be able to do it. Agreed. Yeah. No, it's um, it's not really a a good position. Some of these uh, security issues, and especially when they're coming from really really big uh, software vendors, I think that's ex- extremely extremely poor but you know it's a 
it is you know it's just another reminder of the complexity of software and we we look at technology today and sometimes think everything's so easy oh i can get myself up and running with a email account and a smartphone like i could get my whole you know i could launch a new business and tomorrow set up all the it for it myself and uh you know you forget there's actually many risks and complexities to uh, just doing these things on an ad hoc basis yep all right now um next up we've had some some issues around um around Auckland recently with uh, some card skimming and uh you know a bit of scams going on there with uh, with people losing quite a bit of uh, money out of their bank accounts i think we there was i go back to the example that uh or sorry the the issue that happened was it two or three years ago where one of the downtown car parks had issues with their um, oh, yes. their pay and display units. Um, only reason I know is because my card was one that got taken. So yeah, I think, same I think mine um, was too. Yeah. And then that, it ended up taking them, was it a year or 18 months to actually get the um, the system back up and going again? Longer, and longer. It took ages. I mean, you basically were cash only in that, that yeah, two, or, two or three years. Yeah, yeah. And um, they never revealed where the, the vulnerability is, but I reckon that it was uh, an employee who downloaded the files from the um, the units and then sent them away. I don't actually reckon that any of the encryption got, if there was encryption between the sites, was ever compromised. So, you know, it's sort of this, oh, here we go again with skimming. So, mm, the, I guess there's always a lot of possibilities in those cases, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not um, obliged to share that information with the current laws in New Zealand. But, um, but I hear they've caught um, they've caught um, some Canadian scammers, mm. yeah, I, I and, think they're, and they're actually before the courts. So I mean, the, I think it's positive news to know that these you know dodgy um, things that go on um, aren't in every case uh, something that um, you know doesn't actually get dealt with, and you know there is an opportunity for uh, um, you know for for the scammers to be hit. This is the tip of the iceberg, honestly. I mean, this is a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry. This is a bigger, bigger crime, uh, organised crime cash gatherer than drugs itself now globally. It's a lot cleaner to do, and we've talked about this in previous podcasts. Um, we are only going to see, this is only the tip of it for New Zealand. We're going to see a lot more of this coming through, for sure. Because it's happening in Australia. We get um, there's a sort of a uh, anecdotally they talk about the international world hacking tours where people go on trips through countries, doing the skimming and the scamming type thing, getting the funds transferred or the details transferred to another part of the world and they transfer the cash out that at that point so it's hard to track back. But they um, yeah they're doing it all around the world. It's easy for them to do. Go to a country, scam it, skim it as much as they can, and then move to the next country. So I think we're actually going to see a lot more of this in New Zealand, unfortunately. Are you guys amazed? I'm uh, impressed with the bank's response to this. Um, you know, my feelings about banks are not amazing. Um, but the fact that, you know, the banks have stood, stood up straight away and said, hey, look, you know, obviously this is this is a problem and we're going to look after you and actually cover you. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that the banks haven't said, well, I'm really sorry, but you're on your own. No, I mean, they, they have to give confidence in these systems. Otherwise, the whole, you know the whole process would fall fall apart so they've got to you know allow people to be confident in the credit cards and the you know gadgets and so on they're giving out they don't want everyone to say well i want a printed little uh booklet like we used to have 30 years ago that shows my balance in it and when i come into my bank and make a manual transaction you can update that uh you know it's in their interests and it's they save so much money through all the electronic transactions that 
they wouldn't want uh, you know people to be running running scared, I suppose. Because yeah. I, I know ASP have started putting in um, anti-skimming devices at their ATMs. Uh, the last one was the uh, protrusion from the, where you put the card in that sticks right out. So the you can green see. ones, yeah. And the latest thing is I've got a really annoying flap that hang, that sort of hangs over where the keypad is. So you've got to sort of like lift it up and you can only just get your hand in to put the, um, the, the digits in. So the idea is if there is a camera above... You know, it's not going to be able to record your numbers. Oh, okay. Haven't seen that one yet. That must yeah, be I've, new. I've seen that, but yeah. I mean, the the weakest point's going to be um, not so much the cash machines because I think they're going to tighten up quite a lot. It's going to be retail operations. So it's going in, and it's replacing the um, the old K twenty one keypads and that sort of stuff with a skimming hacked device, which still operates like a normal keypad. But I mean, they've seen this overseas, so I reckon in terms of retail stores, that's going to be the next weakest point. Yeah, I'm I'm amazed with you know I'm I'm a merchant. I've got a, a a merchant account with a bank. I would never purchase FBOS equipment. You know the technology is so changing so often. The security is getting better and better. You know we own our point of sale, but we don't own any of the FBOS um, equipment because as soon as something new and better comes out, we can then get it swapped swap straight out. And there's no massive investment in in capital and all that sort of thing. Yeah, that's great. And I may actually kill an industry by saying this, but if you're buying your FBOS machine off Trade Me. You might just be in the Muppet Brigade, to be honest, because you just don't know about that. Go to a place that is actually reputable to do your FPOS stuff. Don't just go to, you know, um, Kiwi 21 or whatever off uh, Trade Me and buying the unit from there, because you don't have any history as to who that person is. Who, who knows? It might be tracking every transaction and firing all the details off and but the credit card details, and yeah, it's 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 not smart, is it? No. There's even the things, you know, I know when I was looking at particular terminals that, you know, and as a merchant, you don't know about this, but some terminals are so old that they won't take the new upgrades of, of, of software. So you could actually end up buying a terminal that will work, but as soon as there's another big upgrade, you know, you're going to have to buy another again. one. Yeah, yep. yep. All right, now, um, something that's been of, of interest uh, to us since the podcast launched is, um, and and I guess a, uh, a bit of a, a concern has been uh, the limitations for New Zealand in access to international internet traffic and um, you know for the past um, well many years we've had really just one uh, you know one primary uh, provider of uh, bandwidth to New Zealand that's been the Southern Cross um, undersea fiber optic cables um, but there is another player that has uh, has been looking to come into the market and uh, right now we're going to uh, jump across to an interview with the CEO of Pacific Fibre, Mark Rushworth. Right now we're uh, we're chatting with Mark Rushworth, who's the CEO of Pacific Fibre uh, here in New Zealand. Uh, Mark, welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, um, Pacific Fibre, can uh, can you share a little bit about uh, what what Pacific Fibre is about and and why Pacific Fibre is important um, to those of us in uh, in New Zealand and and Australia? Absolutely. Um, look, the genesis of the idea really comes back to around about three and a half years ago, where. Um, a couple of guys, Sam Morgan, Rod Jury, were uh, commenting in the media around, I guess, misguided government expenditure in fibre to the home. Um, and you kind of go, well, why misguided? Um, really, the idea is around the problem that we have in, in the case of New Zealand um, with data caps comes down to the fact that we have a sole provider 
for our international bandwidth. Now, why is that relevant? Well, 80%, actually it's higher, about 85% of the cons- content we consume in New Zealand comes via, comes from the States or via the States if it's coming from Europe. And uh, so the idea back then was, well, if you're building a super fibre highway, five lanes up and down New Zealand, um, you know, it doesn't get you very far because 80% of the content we consume comes offshore. And uh, and there is that sole cable, Southern Cross, great cable, been there for 10 years, but and we all know as consumers when there is only one of something as a supplier, we tend to be paying more than we should. Sure, um, yeah, bit of a problem. Um, than, other, than other markets. So we kind of looked at that and... Um, uh, diving into that, we realised actually the demand for bandwidth um, has uh, been doubling for the last five years, doubling every couple of years, so growing at kind of 55% per annum. And, and I'll come back to some of the, the drivers for that demand side. Um, and then we looked at, well, supply, you've got monopoly situation in New Zealand, you've got a duopoly in Australia. Um, but then we dived in underneath and, and looked at actual supply arrangements. And even though you can upgrade uh, subsea cables by putting some fancy shiny equipment on each end, there is kind of an end of life in terms of how much capacity you can squeeze out of them. Yeah, there are and, limits, uh, aren't there? Because the the what get what the uh, the fibre optic cable that gets laid initially that's that's the main limiting factor, isn't it? Correct. It's the it's the once the fibre's in the water, you um you can repair it, but you can't change the um the fibre itself. Um, more importantly, uh, about every um and it depends on the total length of the cable, but every 80k you put in a big repeater, which uh, basically takes a signal, cleans it up, and sends it down to the next repeater. And the distance you space those determines what the overall maximum capacity you can get. So once, you, once it's in the water, what you tend to do then is to get more capacity out of your system, you put um, uh, different optical gear on each end that, uh, that over time squeezes more and more capacity out of it. But New Zealand and Australia, um, uh, there's a, a supply constraint coming on board 2018. And, uh, and we looked at the market and said, oh, well, there's a you know, very profitable market here um, for international bandwidth. There's room for a, a, a third player um, to make a market entry that is uh, carry neutral and, and independent from the big telcos. Um, and uh, that's where the Pacific Fibre business really started on the back of, and that was um, you know two years ago we, we started. And uh, here we are today. So that, yeah, that's quite interesting. You talk about 2018 that when we're potentially hitting, uh, you know, a supply constraint issue. Um, that's quite a long way, long way ahead to look. And I guess that's um, uh, one of the challenges for Pacific Fibre as a business in terms of getting financing and funding and all of those things. It's uh, it's a fairly long term view people have to have to take of uh, of such an investment. I imagine. Well, it, it, you're right. I guess it's a, um, but although it's a. Um, it's a critical piece of infrastructure, and uh, you know, infrastructure dams, electricity tend to have um, you know longer life than uh, um, physical life of this, which is 25 years. Yeah. Um, the challenge that you have, and, and this is where we have been very successful over the last 18 months, is um, working with <coughs> anchor customers and securing their commitment, support, and binding contracts 
and doing it um, where the supply that they're going to get off you is still two years away. And so, you know, getting a um, you know, major telco to lift where their vision's, you know, next quarter or next half year results to look out that far and commit to a contract, which, you know, in some cases, the majority of ours are 10-year contracts. Um, the longest one goes up to 23 years. Wow. Um, so for us, it kind of, I guess, confirms the fact that, um, you know, there's strong appetite for another cable serving the region. Um, people want to see a competitive market ahead of um, each respective government's investment in fibre to the home. Uh, because without a competitive market for international bandwidth and uh, still having restrictive data caps, neither country will realise the true benefits of um, what fibre can offer if we're still sitting on constrained 5 gig data plans. Agreed, yep. So what is it that Pacific Fibre yeah. has, has announced today? It was, I think, you know, looking at the various um, um, announcements from Pacific Fibre, I've, I've, you know, since, since the beginning, um, today would have to be uh, one of the most significant ones. Well, they're all you know, hugely important, particularly when we announce um, new customers. So today we announced a fifth anchor customer, um, a U.S. Uh, telecommunications company. And um, so now we have 200 million U.S. dollars worth of contracted revenue um, across these these five five customers, which you know, 200 million dollars U.S. is is a lot of revenue. Well, that's and, a fairly uh, big chunk of, of what you need to, um, to to build the cable. Is that right? Well, it, it is. Um, we, you know, we can't quite look at it as in, um, you know, this is equity that goes towards the, sure. the build. Um, but uh, it certainly gives the equity investors uh, confidence in the business plan, validates that demand side. Um, and, uh, you know, demonstrates that there are customers that... Um, are willing to support a cable so far out from being built, you know, two years out from being built, and customers across New Zealand, you know, Australia and the US. Um, you know, it's always going to be easier getting support out of New Zealand, uh, where in New Zealand, you know, there's only the, the single provider, Southern Cross. Sure. Um, but it's, so it's great to get the likewise support from um, US and, and Australia. Yeah, that, that's great. Now, uh, there's probably been one or two of us that have been, uh, you know, it's been a while between announcements that have uh, that have wondered whether whether Pacific Fibre can uh, can get together sort of sufficient funding to to pull this off. But you know, having that commitment of uh, of contracted revenue, um, you've also announced today um, that. You expect to be in a position of sort of finalising all those those um, uh, funding agreements. Uh, I think it's in the sort of mid June type uh, type time frame. Is That's that right. something you're pretty confident of? Oh, absolutely. You know, 100 yeah. um, percent confidence that we'll uh, we'll get this away on the back of those uh, customer contracts. And uh, you know, if anything, the um, and we've said. Previously, I've said before that look, it's um, been a lot harder and taken a lot longer than we um, initially thought. Um, and uh, you know, we looked at a number of different options of, of debt and equity. Um, and uh, you know, we're working with um, a few investors in particular that um, like infrastructure type assets. And what the 
uh, 200 million of customer sales does is it provides, um, I guess, a surety or provides a minimum level of return for those equity investors. Um, and that's what they like to see. They like to see, you know, any perceived market risk or downsides mitigated and sure. having that level of sales, um, you know, it does, it achieves that. So good. it's, uh, you know, kind of good milestone. That gives us confidence to, to, um, uh, you know, put mid June as the date when we expect to have financing completed and gives us confidence to, you know, set a ribbon cutting date in Sydney for July 2014 when, um, when the first packets of, uh, Data will be sent over the new Pacific Fibre Cable. Yeah, I think that that's that's pretty exciting. I mean, it seems uh, a long a long way off, but now you've got all those other things in place. I know we've heard um, you know one or two other dates in the past of of when uh, Pacific Fibre might be launched. Um, is that something now that's um, um, you know going to be pretty solid in terms of we can expect this to be uh, something that's available uh, in 2014? Um, and presuming presuming that happens, what's um, you know when will consumers start seeing the flow on? Effect. Um, well, we signed T Subcom as our uh, vendor last year, and uh, you know, they're the, the um, leading expert in the industry for subsea deployment. Um, it's a turnkey solution with them, so confident that they can, uh, you know, deliver in that uh, in that two-year build window. Um, the, the actual cable deployment itself is the is relatively easy to do. Um, you know this. Cable, which is 13,000 kilometres in length, is is the thickness of a garden hose, um, and uh, it lies on the sea floor. Um, it's just popped over the back of the boat. Um, for areas where the depth of the water, particularly as it comes into um, into New Zealand, um, where it's less than 1,500 metres, the ship uses what's called a sea plough. That is much like a plough you use in the garden behind a horse. Um, and it buries the, makes a small trench of about a, you know, school roller, 30 centimetre roller, um, and then covers it over and buries the cable at about, um, you know, one and a half metres below the, the seafloor. And that just protects it from things like, uh, ship anchors and, um, fishing nets and, and all those various bits that, that, um, cables don't like. So we've got T Subcom, as I say, um, to do that, uh, that deployment 2014. Um, is uh, July when we've got it um, earmarked for delivery. That is, uh, it's about a three-month slip on. We had Q1 in um, in 2014 for it to be delivered. Sure. Um, and uh, we've just pushed that out on the back. That it's taken taken us longer to um, to bring all the the financing together. But uh, you know, and then what what we'll start to see on the back of that, I guess, it'll be different in in, um, in different markets. Um, but what I would expect. Uh, over time, um, to really see some, you know, fibre plans, broadband plans in the market that have higher data caps, uh, that are perhaps more in line with what you see in Europe, um, US, even Australia has uh, significantly higher data caps than what we um, get to enjoy in, in New Zealand. Um, otherwise, of course. If we don't see bigger data caps on fibre, then if fibre is meant to be 10 times the speed of, uh, you know, what we see on broadband today, and, uh, you know, people burn through their data cap on broadband in about 20 days, 
you'll be doing the same on fiber with over a weekend and then you'll be needing to buy more um, which will be I guess there won't really be any incentive to move through to fiber there because most of the times you'll be speed constrained <clears throat> to speeds of broadband or dial-up. Yep. So, so we guess, really need that, we need that competitive market. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it brings us into a position, um, you know, like we see in Australia where it's sort of a, you know, a thousand gig or terabyte type data um, caps or, you know, or even bigger become, um, you know, reasonably affordable at that consumer uh, consumer type level and and also to, um, you know, small to medium uh, businesses that, uh, you know, at this stage may not be able to afford to, um, you know, leverage the internet as much as, as what they could if uh, um, we were paying a lot less for that international traffic. Oh, exactly. If you, if you probably go back, I don't know, six, seven years ago, um, most people were on dial-up plans about that stage. And, uh, you know, we were happy doing... Um, a little bit of email and occasionally logging into the World Wide Web. Um, you know, we may have consumed then on average probably about, I don't know, 80 to 100 meg of, of data. Now, um, with broadband consumers are, you know, chewing through, um, five to six gig on average with your real heavy users, you know, using well over 100 gig a month. Um, fiber to the home, you, you do need those levels of, uh, data caps that you talk about in Australia, Um, you know, 1,000 gig, that kind of stuff. If you are going to, you know, realise the real benefits um, that fibre can offer to businesses and to uh, into consumers. Yeah, well, it's nice to see Orcon have, have uh, you know announced their UFB plans with a with a uh, plan at that thousand gig uh, uh, size. Um, but at the moment, you know, obviously the cost of uh, delivering that is is a lot more than what most uh, consumers are probably comfortable paying. But yeah, it's well, well, how's, that, how's, that, how's that priced? Is it kind of it should be about eighty bucks, shouldn't it? <laughs> well, 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 uh, <laughs> when uh, when you guys do your magic, that's certainly what. We're we're, uh, what we're what we're hoping to uh, to see. Well, we are all expecting that. Yes. Yeah, I think you know what we're seeing at the moment is that starts at one hundred ninety nine dollars. Um, you know, at at their um, lower end uh, UFB speeds, but it's good. You know, it's good to see that in place. And uh, you know, their business offering I think four hundred nineteen plus GST. So um, you know, those are things that we haven't haven't had in the market before. Um, and yeah, we we certainly we certainly need more of it. Now, something I, I think um, will be of interest to listeners is what what will happen if their ISP is connecting through Pacific Fiber, and uh, you know somebody does put a put an anchor through um, uh, through your cable. What would what would be the impact on them in that in that sort of situation? Um. Depending on what deal they've uh, signed, the majority of ISPs um, would be signing with us uh, supply agreements that provide protection. So um, what that means is that we will have um, uh, alternate paths, um, so other cables in the region that we have either swapped or purchased capacity on, um, so that we effectively, although we're building a single string cable, we will be able to look and feel like a, you know, a, a ring configuration network or a matrix network. So, if one side of our cable goes down, it can traffic can be diverted across onto an alternate path, while we, uh, um, you know, repair the cable and then swap the traffic back. Excellent. So we'll be able to offer, you know, protected products if the um, the ISPs 
you know, choose to, to purchase that. Right, um, right. So that provides a bit, of, a bit of peace of mind out there. And, I mean, the, these situations, you know, have certainly happened overseas with various things, and, uh, you know, th- there's been a number of them over the last few years. What's the typical time that it takes to uh, to get one of those sort of uh, re- repairs in, in place? I seem to recall, you know, it's, um, you know, considering, the, you know, how far down these cables are and so on, it's... Uh, it doesn't seem to take too long. Maybe a week or two off the top of my head. Is that? Uh, yeah, well, is well that the about fix. Right? It, it, it all depends where the where the break is. Obviously, um, you know, the, for this region, there'll be ships up in Numea, so um, uh, it can take up to a week to get to the, you know, the location where the fault is or the break. Um, fixing it can be pretty quick. You know, three days, five days, and then um, so you might be down for, you know, two weeks. Right, um, right. Depends on weather as well. Um, now the region we're in is very benign. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of faults uh, in this region. Thankfully, most of the breaks are caused by um, human intervention. So a ship dragging its anchor or someone out fishing in a place that they shouldn't be, you know, fishing. So Auckland has, um, as an example, has two cable protection zones, one out of Murawai and the other one out of Takapuna, where... Yeah, I saw the line on the map when we were out last night, actually, and, uh, yeah, yeah. You're not, so, allowed, you're not allowed to fish there. You get fines, you know, $200 instant fine if you're caught fishing in the areas. So, yeah. um, and, and that, you know, that protects... But you go somewhere like uh, Singapore, and you just need to look out in the Singapore harbour, and there are hundreds of ships anchored, and over there they have, um, you know, the garden hose suddenly turns into a fire hose with armoured plating. You know, it's buried three metres under the um, seabed. And uh, so there's different ways of protecting it. Mm, mm. But there's always, you know, if you're trying to protect against human error, then there'll be some form of stupidity that uh, does something you weren't anticipating. Mm. Um, but, you know, pretty pretty rapid turnaround fix because, you know, critical infrastructure, all of these cables. Great. Oh well, th- thanks very much for your time, Mark. It's uh, it's, it's actually been fascinating, and uh, I think timely for us to get a bit of an update on uh, on on what's happening with Pacific Fibre. And you know, I think everyone's uh, you know excited about the potential of um, of what ultra-fast broadband will bring into their homes. But a key part of that picture is uh, is being able to access um, you know the international flow flow of traffic at a, at an affordable price and. Uh, it sounds like uh, you guys are really a, a, a key to making that happen um, here. So yeah, really, really looking forward to um, to hearing things get finalised and uh, um, the impact that's going to have on the market. Fantastic! Look, uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, come on the show and tell you all about the Civic Fiber. Brilliant. Look forward to uh, being around 2014. Right, so uh, before we end the show, I just want to uh, revisit um, QuickFlix. Now, this was a topic last week. QuickFlix, uh, of course, launched into the New Zealand uh, New Zealand market uh, with an offering that, in some ways, compares to uh, to Netflix, but in other ways, is is, is extremely different. Um, now, guys, over the last few days, uh, we've all had a chance to have a little bit of a look, or a bit more of a look at uh, at QuickFlix. What are sort of the um, you know the big impressions? Uh, I really like the fact that you've got the ISPs getting on board, like Orcon Slingshot are zero rating data, and especially if you're watching online video it, and in HD, it sucks a lot of your your, your caps. So the fact you can get a zero rate is fantastic. Uh, the big moan I have about them is they've just got no content. If you look at your Hulu or your Netflix, 
uh, Quickflix is miles behind. Yeah, I'd, I'd care the same. Yeah, that, I, I think that's the major issue at the moment. The the other issue I have is with the, the zero-rated data caps as it is with the smaller um, internet providers, and there are reasons why you know a lot of people like to actually be with a, with a bigger provider. And, yeah, I guess it's a bit of a pity that none of the big providers, have re- you know, the biggest providers have uh, have jumped on board. Orcon, yep, they're, they're pretty sizable. Um, so that's good. But it would be good to see, um, you know, some of the, some of the other um, uh, ones jump on board, such, you know, Vodafone, Telstra Clear and, uh, and Telecom. I think, um, you know, if, if any of those jumped on board would be a good thing. Chances of it happening? Zero. Some- so that's the that's that's the flip side of it. Now something interesting we, when we were chatting last week, you know, we were highlighting that um, accessing Quitflix, you you know, you can do through Sony devices, uh, TVs, Blu-ray players, and and the PS3, uh, but not through um, not through the Xbox yet. And Xbox has really become a real internet entertainment platform. Um, a li- interesting little bit of info that I um, I dug up was that. Um, the, it appears to be the reason why QuickFlix hasn't landed on uh, Xbox is that Foxtel, who um, you know TV uh, cable provider in the uh, in the Australian market, um, signed an exclusive deal uh, in the Australian market. Um, I think about uh, maybe twelve to eighteen months ago. So that deal probably will expire uh, at some stage this year. So there is a possibility of uh, QuickFlix if they've got enough. Um, you know, funding to be able to get uh, some sort of deal to um, uh, to have placement on the Xbox in the future. So we'll wait and see on that one. But um, yeah, it's nice to know that um, you know it, it technically would be feasible for something like that to happen in the future. It's actually nice to you know have a as you know you can complain about the things that that QuickFlix doesn't have or, or does have. It's nice to actually have a streaming service in New Zealand instead of having to do all the VPN trickery or proxy trickery. So, you know, hopefully it's they're going to have some good people behind them. They're going to expand their, their library of content and they'll actually be a good runner to um, Sky because really at the moment if you want to um, have something in your home where you're not having to go out to get DVDs or, or whatever, you know, Sky is really the only option you've got. You mean you've managed to watch all of the Shortland Street episodes on TV and Z On Demand? I uh, don't want to admit that, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, no, it, it is good news and, uh, you know, we, we would certainly encourage... Um, you know, listeners to jump on board, try out Quick Flicks, um, give it a go, and yeah, certainly if you find that the the you know more content doesn't come through, then hey, you know, um, you you may want to unplug. But you know, we encourage people to get on board because that's how it's going to um, uh, be able to grow its content base as it uh, as it as it grows uh, in subscribers. All right, well that's us for um, episode sixty-five. Thank you everybody for uh, for listening in. Uh, you can of course uh, find us online nztechpodcast.com, facebook.com slash nztechpodcast. We like to be liked on there. Um, if uh, if you're in that sort of mood, we like um, to be liked. We do. We love it. We love being liked. Um, please like us. Please. Um, so yeah, feel free to jump on board. I think we've got about uh, sixteen hundred of our of our listeners that are uh, um, that have jumped on board and 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 given us um, that support on Facebook. So thank you very much. Um, Twitter as well. There's a, there's a good uh, percentage of you uh, now that are uh, that are following us on Twitter. So you can find us there at NZ Tech Podcast. Uh, and individually, if you want to uh, to follow any of us um, listening as, um, yeah, if you want to follow any of us, Nate, what's your handle? Nice and simple. It's just Nate, probably the shortest Twitter handle in the whole of the country, I think. 
It's an awesome Twitter handle. It's pretty impressive. And I'm uh, Urban Kiwi NZ. Thanks, Skip. And my one, very easy, just my name, uh, Paul Spain. So, uh, yeah, track us down online. And, uh, yeah, feel free to hit us up on email as well. Uh, drop feed, drop messages to feedback at nztechpodcast.com. So thanks, everyone. We will catch you next week on the NZ Tech Podcast.